Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. And today I'm very happy to have back on the podcast Professor Daniela Mello. We talked on episode 53, anticipating the U.S. presidential elections, and I asked Daniela to come back to the podcast so that we can talk about the results and what is the possible relationship between the Biden-Harris administration and the European Union. And after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by ELF for this month of November. I'm here with Professor Daniela Mello. Daniela, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. Thank you for having me again. Oh, you're the right person to be here. And I'm, I'll try not to you know, get too panicky on my voice because the way I feel about the U.S. election. So I'm waiting for you to, you know, impart some calmness uh, to uh, my my beating heart. I, I will try, Ricardo, but uh, everyone is very tense um, on both sides of the Atlantic, it sounds. Indeed. And it's so good to have you here because I want to have your expertise and your analysis. You're in the United States, which puts you closer to the action on this particular. And you're just saying that you're feeling the tension. And actually, that was one of the topics of our last conversation was the tension that we could live during these days. So for a keen observer, as you are, tell me what you thought about not only the electoral process, but most importantly about the results. The results were within expectation, right? There, there has been a lot of talk about the polls failing once again, but within expectation, right? Um, or the results fell, with, fell within expectation in, in that Biden clearly had a lead in the popular vote, and, um, but had a much narrower lead in state by state and some states that were thought to be competitive ended up not being competitive at all, like Texas. So there's a lot of discussion going on in the United States about what has happened there in terms of the polling, but I don't think we will know for, for certain, for several weeks anyway. Um, in terms of the results, there was a lot of tension going into the election. There was a lot of tension the day of the election and in the next two or three days and a lot of relief. It, it was really incredible. I'm sure, it was, I'm sure this played in Europe as well. Um, there was a carnival atmosphere in Biden strong areas. And I don't mean celebration, I mean carnival. Uh, I had never witnessed such a display of joy as people you know, took to the streets to celebrate Biden. But that was equally met with great resistance, anger, um, distrust from Trump supporters who early on started listening very carefully to, to the president and, and seeing the signs that were coming from the White House and really joined in the president in, in, in calling for you know, electoral fraud, for recounts, even for re-votes, uh, for the involvement of the police, for the involvement of, um, of the courts, um, basically gearing up for an institutional fight and maybe an extra institutional fight, we shall see, um, to, to contest the results. So it, it's been sort of a unique moment in, um, in, in American modern politics in that I, I cannot recall any other election over the past 20 years in which we've had this type of outcome, this type of fight, um, in which we've had the president that pretty much has 
refused the transition team um, to to come in and to actually start behaving as if a transition is happening. So everything is up in the air. But what I think is interesting, Daniela, and it wasn't a blue wave in a way that if Texas, Florida, North Carolina, Ohio, they all left when gone to Biden, then things would be different. Still, I'm sure that President Trump would keep saying that there was fraud everywhere and the election was stolen from him. But still, for Vice President Biden, president-elect now, it was a good showing. The Democrats got back Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. They got back Arizona. They're probably going to get back uh, Georgia. So all in all, we can say that this was actually a very good result for Vice President Biden. There is some discussion about the results for the Democrats at the House of Representatives and not taking the Senate right away. Senate could be tied. So again, you were saying that people were so happy on the streets and the result speaks for itself. So why do we feel this nausea? <laughs> why do we feel this, you know, this black dark void inside us well you are right it was a great showing right uh, but it was closer than people expected so i mean there were a number of scenarios that could have played out right one scenario was that there was going to be this big blue wave and that was the scenario that the left uh, um, was really hoping for a scenario in which Uh, the win and the margins of the win would be so big as to be impossible for any sort of recount or any sort of um, legal shenanigans right, to take place um, that would undo it. So, you know, a more decisive moment. The scenario that played out was certainly a good scenario for Biden. As, as you were pointing out, they, they took multiple states. Uh, they even flipped states that had gone with Trump last time, right, and now are going with Biden. But the margins are so small that they really give credence and some, um, I don't know that they give credence, but they certainly don't help in the narrative that nothing went wrong, right, or in the hopes that a recount might not change, you know, margins of 0.5 or 0.6 and whatnot that we're seeing right now. So why do we still feel um anxious we feel anxious because we have a president that again is acting once again in a completely counter-normative way and in some ways even counter-institutional way right It's trying to use um the system and trying to use his influence over his own administration to pursue a legal case for which he has not yet produced any credible um, any credible evidence. And what's what's more concerning this week is the positioning of the Republican Party itself, right? So we know that the positioning of the Republican Party via V the claims of fraud was going to matter. And they we have a bit of a split, right? A very few Republicans have actually come forth to congratulate Uh, or president-elect Biden, and um, and to publicly accept right, that uh, that President Trump had lost the election. The vast majority of Republicans are either silent or they're coming out in support and helping the president in his crusade to 
undo undo the, the the results state by state. So it's um it's a scenario that is a bit more complicated and that lends itself well for a legal battle, let alone a political battle. The political battle started way before the votes started um, being counted. So let's get into that. What is the end game here for the Republicans? So, as you said, some uh, four, as we speak right now, Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, um, Ben Sass, and Susan Collins, they came out and they say, congratulations to Vice, Pre Vice President Biden and President-elect. And then you have a group of senators that just, they just been hiding. <laughs> they, they walk fast in the corridor so they don't have to talk with the media. And then you have the usual suspects, and that is, you know, Ted Cruz from Texas or Lindsey Graham from uh, um, South Carolina the Tom Cottons and the Josh Always, and even maybe Marco Rubio, which are waiting for things to materialize, and then they can, you know, pick which side. So where do you think all these Trump voters are going? And of course, let's not forget the, the, the big uh, elephant in the room, which is President Trump itself, that he can say, I will go to 2024. It is true that he may be in prison by then, but <laughs> each thing at its own time. So how do you see this? And you study uh, social movements. How do you see all this 73 million people going in the next uh, years? Uh, that's a huge question. So l let me go in parts. I'll, I'll start with the Republican Party. And if I veer off, bring me back to the point of the, of the people, please. Um, the Republican Party. If going back to the scenarios, right, if, if a blue wave had happened and they had really lost seats in the House and potentially already lost the Senate, I think we would be looking at a positioning that is very different from what we're seeing right now. Right. If that had materialized like that, the Republican Party would be trying to divest from Donald Trump um, as peacefully right, as possible, but clearly divesting, right? And already talking about um, what, what the party post-Trump might look like. That's not what happened. So what happened was 70 million people, 71 almost, right, voted for the platform that Donald Trump put forth. In fact, the Republican Party did not lose seats in the House. They gained ground in the House. I mean, in terms of ma in mathematical terms, they, they gain more. Um, and they are still in play for the Senate. So the two runoff Senate seats in Georgia are everything between now and January. And why are they everything? Because if the Democrats get both of those senators with the vice president, they will be able to control the Senate because they will be at a tie and the vice president can break that tie. I believe that this is the thing that is driving, at least in the short term, the thing that is truly driving Mitch McConnell and uh, and the Republican Party altogether in how careful they have been to either support the president or not divest from him, um, no matter how, incre how incredible his rhetoric gets in terms of um, in terms of fraud, because Right now, Mitch McConnell is looking at an electorate that he needs to maintain active and mobilized. And that electorate is very angry and it's very upset and it's in a fighting mood, but it's a fighting mood for Trump. It makes no logical sense if you want to take the Senate to 
separate yourself as a party from the president at this moment. So I, I do truly believe that for Mitch McConnell, that's the biggest play at hand right now. Um, his ability to be able to um, constrain a President Biden really rests on his ability to maintain control of the Senate. If he loses control of the Senate, he loses the power, right? He loses the ability to constrain the next president. It, it is a dangerous game, though, because it's a game that continues to lend credence to the rhetoric coming out of the White House. Indeed. And we're going to go into that right away. I just want to make a, a, a very dire uh prediction and that is in 2024 we're going to have the ticket tucker carlson from fox news and donald j trump jr so then <laughs> then ho the whole I, thing I, will I go could, could you could you hear me sigh very deeply <laughs> from this side? <laughs> then the whole thing I, will, uh... will go to a place that it's Let... hot and the sun doesn't shine so let's let's hope not. And that's a personal opinion, not a political one. Oh, but let me tell you this one thing before before you move on to the next question, because you asked about, um, you know, what happens to these voters and, and what happens to the party. Right. I, and in terms of, of mobilization, I think that this is a very dangerous game that the Republican Party is playing right now, because um, by 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 giving some level of credibility to the accusations that the president is making, um, they are contributing to the delegitimization of the electoral process, to the erosion of the trust in our institutions, in the process itself, let alone in the political elites, right? I mean, um, that's not something that is recoverable very quickly. It's going to take years to recover trust from that electorate. And the second thing that really concerns me is right now, things are tense, but they're calm. And they're incredibly calm <laughs> if you understand how many groups are willing to mobilize for one side or the other side uh, and mobilize even with guns and with weapons, right? We've, we've talked about um, militias and and um, their willingness to come out and defend what they perceive to be a left-wing coup being perpetrated against Donald Trump. And I, I am concerned because one possible explanation for the current calm moment is that Donald Trump is promising that there is an institutional path for him to still win the election. But if come December 14th, <laughs> it becomes very clear that that institutional path is not there and that Donald Trump is not certified as the next president of the United States for a second term, right? Um, then those individuals that are waiting for the institutional process to play in their favor might be finally willing to take matters into their own hands. And I think that's a very credible threat right now in terms of um, having some violence erupt. And I mean, same is true if another thing plays out, right? And if this actually works in favor for Donald, in the favor of Donald Trump, and he manages to change the votes in the Electoral College, and then December 14th comes and Vice President Biden doesn't get, you know, the electoral votes that he needs, um, then the left is going to come to the streets and, and the protests won't be kind. Um, 
So it's not, I, I'm not trying to sound dire, but in terms of playing this out, I'll, I'll come back to my previous point that I, I believe the Republican Party is playing a very dangerous game when it's um, when it reinforces the message that comes out of the White House without any credible evidence to present. All right, changing now to then the Biden-Harris administration. And before we go into that, I would like to um, express my happiness. And I'm sure uh, you will share that feeling with me, with the fact that the United States has a vice president-elect, which is a woman. And a black women and a South Asian women. So a, a very important glass ceiling that was broken, Daniela. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about uh, what is the Biden-Harris administration uh, gearing up to. We have, of course, the pandemic. We have the economic crisis. We have unrest. So tell me, has, you know, the 2021 starts developing and then Fortunately, we had some good news with the vaccine for COVID. And of course, we can have all kinds of pa packages coming out of the uh, Congress to help the economy. So tell us how things will go in the first couple of months for this uh, new government. Okay, well, it seems clear that Biden is going to pay quite a lot of attention, first and foremost, to the COVID crisis. Um, he has already started making his. Um, his plan and his strategy um, available, and he's been talking about it. And, and that is first and foremost in the minds of Americans, obviously, because I don't know if you've been seeing the numbers, but uh, we are breaking all records um, in, in the wrong direction. We're, we, we are having over 120, 130,000 cases a day. Um, we, we are really nearing a new chaotic stage of um of the covid pandemic in the united states so that that's clearly one of the issues but you know biden is going to come in with really incredible challenges and one of the challenges that i think is going to weigh um on him is how to maintain actually not just for the first couple of months, but for the four years, how to maintain the coalition that he brought together, mm. together, <laughs> right? Yeah, especially uh, because they're fighting amongst them already. Well, that's to be expected, I think, because <laughs> it was a very uneasy coalition to begin with, right? I mean, we have a coalition of uh, centrist, moderate Republicans, right? A coalition of moderate Democrats or hardcore Democrats, of progressives, of independents. It is an uneasy coalition. You might call it a negative coalition, a coalition against Trump, um, as much as it might have been a coalition for a left-wing platform as well. I, I, there, there is a lot of support for Biden himself within that coalition, obviously. But Biden needs to be reminded of that because it's a fragile coalition. And if Trump leaves, he's going to leave. He's not going to shut up. He's not going to be quiet over the next four years. And there's a real danger that he will continue to control the narrative within the Republican Party, um, whether or not the party embraces him or not, right? He's still going to be in the airwaves. He's still going to be claiming that he was robbed of this election. 
he's still going to be trying to undermine um, the next presidency. I think that much is, I mean, I know we're doing projections for the future, right? And political scientists, all social scientists feel very um, uncomfortable doing that sort of projection. But with Donald Trump, we've seen enough, I think, to know that this is going to be um, part of what happens. So I think Biden is going to have a very difficult task at hand because he's going to be pressed from the left to push harder for things like healthcare, right? To push harder on environmental questions and perhaps harder than he's willing to go, right? As, as a political animal, uh, as the person that he is. So he's going to have a divided country. Uh, if you really think about the challenges that a President Biden is going to find, uh, is going to, to find when, when he starts, it's incredible. I mean, I hope, I hope that he has the presence of mind and the calm that he is demonstrating right now throughout the next four years, because he will need them. <laughs> Um, because he will face a huge battle on the right, especially if, you know, especially if the Senate remains in, in the hands of the Republicans, then he's going to be blocked, right, in, like, legislation that he'll try to uh, to sponsor will be blocked in the Senate, almost for sure. Um, but on the left, he's also going to have to manage these very disparate visions uh, of of what matters, of what issues need to be tackled right away, and um, and how to go about them. Right, he's been a big defender of the Affordable Care Act, and as you probably know, the Affordable Care Act is now being discussed in the Supreme Court. Uh, it's not looking particularly good right now for the Republicans. Like it sounds like they will actually not like that. The justices, even the conservative court, as Trump likes to now label the court. It sounds like the conservative court might be willing to maintain the Affordable Care Act, which will be a huge defeat for the Trump administration and for the Republicans and a good win for Biden. So a, a good start, a good platform to build from. But um, anyway, to be seen, I, I, I actually do think that the biggest challenge that um, the president is going to have is a political challenge, right? When it comes to economic packages, when it comes to... Um, to being able to pass another bailout or, or some sort of uh, incentive, being able to help the population that is unemployed by, by passing a new stimulus of some kind. Most of those things, I have faith that he'll be able to actually get the coalition together to pass them, even if the Senate is tight. But, uh, but the political game is going to be intense. <laughs> Over the next four years, the the balancing of all of these competing interests inside and outside of the two main parties and depending on whether or not they have control of the Senate is going to define how much he can actually do, at least until the next midterm election. One of the things then that this new administration has to also rebuild, it's the relationship with the exterior meaning particularly for us in this conversation with the European Union. It is my belief, Daniela, tell me what you think about this, that the Biden administration will regain those links that had during the Obama administration, Clinton and even Bush administration, which is a closeness to the European Union, a belief that this is a good project, the project of building a union with European countries, 
I do believe that they will also be very uh, supportive of democratic processes in some countries that are going a little bit into illiberal democracies, and I'm thinking about Hungary and Poland. Mm -hmm. Also, there's a fact that we have common enemies, let's call it our way, which is, for example, the Russians and the Chinese, and in a way, even the Turks. So tell me, apart from the good news, which is to have the United States back into Paris Agreement and back to the World Health Organization, tell me what you see from the United States could be a proximity of America to the European Union. Well, I think we can safely bet that we are not going to have a President Biden who is cheerleading the breakup of the European Union, which is what we had with President Trump, uh, which was incredible, really beyond anything in ordinary politics within the transatlantic relationship. So it, it seems clear that Biden is going to mean a stabilization or a return to a normalization between um, the United States and its European allies. And we I, it's also a sure bet that we'll see a Biden presidency distance itself from providing clear support to the likes of Viktor Orban, right? Um, it was incredible already that one of, if not the first, I, now I can't remember if it was the first visit to the European Union or one of the first by President Trump was to Poland, right? And um, so it's not that Poland is not deserving of that sort of honor, is what that meant symbolically, given the tensions within the European Union between the measures that the Polish government and same thing with Hungary, right, that, that Orban's government were pursuing. So what we can expect for sure is, again, a normalization between um, European allies and the United States. Uh, Biden is likely to want to undo much of the damage that was done to the relationship during this year. Everyone is who's, who's paying attention to this and who wants to see that normalization is certainly looking forward to the changes that will come to the State Department mm. and to the appointments of the State Department. I mean, the, the ambassadorial appointments of the Trump administration were problematic from a European point of view and very contentious and, and, you know, many appointments, actually, we had vacant seats for a very, very long time, which sent a very strong signal um, to, to the Europeans that there was very little interest in maintaining the conversation or in, in collaborating strategically, right, about um, issues that matter to both, right? Issues of security, issues of trade, issues of climate, you know, the list is long. So all of that is very likely to change. I expect the Biden administration to actually be gearing up, and clearly they are already, to refashion the State Department again, which was gutted during the Trump administration. And with that will come a new emphasis on appointing strong ambassadors to position or to countries who, that are allies and to Brussels, <laughs> an ambassador to the European Union who actually is not proactively trying to break up the European Union and that doesn't see the EU as an enemy. All in all, uh, it's good news for the European Union and it's good news for the transatlantic relationship. What I'm not certain is that 
the relationship will rebuild immediately. I guess that's to be seen. Uh, the extent of the damage, right, between um, European allies and the United States may take more time to rebuild than just uh, a change in presidency. I don't know. You might have some thought on that. <laughs> Well, you brought up a point before we start recording and for people to like that like podcasts and how podcasts are recorded. Of course, I was talking with Danielle before we start recording and you said something really interesting, which was if Biden go and gets most of the Obama team for the State Department, if we can, we go back to a relationship that was a good relationship. But I think Biden will be more... Uh, kind of a real politic level. So I'm I'm quite positive. And in the last minutes, I know that it's not a forte of you, but what do you think about, you know, NATO and exactly like I was saying, this pushback against Russia? How do you see that coming up? Because one of the things that we were all afraid of a second, of a possible second mandate from Trump was actually the United States leaving NATO. So fortunately, I think we, we dodged that bullet, like Americans say. Well, I think we can expect that in terms of trade, for instance, that we'll see some level of normalization, like the fightings within the WTO mm -hmm. between the EU and the United States, at least the rhetoric is going to come down <laughs> on that fight. And we might even see a reversal on, on the tariffs that Trump imposed on uh, a lot of European products, including, you know, Porsche's wines and all of these products that suddenly became a lot more expensive to uh, to import in the United States because of these tariffs meant to punish right the Europeans for unfair trade deals. I, I'm using the Trump logic. Um, but in terms of security, and when we talk about NATO, uh, we might still see a Biden presidency pressuring NATO with the same point as the Trump administration about mm. wanting more money and wanting the Europeans to pull their weight financially, um, and even in terms of troops and contributions, right, within NATO, I, I would actually place my, uh, <laughs> my, my most educated guess is that we will still see the same type of pressure, though it might, like, I don't expect Biden to go campaigning, <laughs> you know, on, on, on the Europeans not carrying their weight within NATO. But That's a point that has actually been very popular across administrations in the United States and that Obama himself um, more eloquently <laughs> also argued than, uh, than President Trump. But nonetheless, has been I, I bet that we will still see some of that pressure coming from the Americans when it comes to security issues and wanting the Europeans to... Um, participate more and, and pay up more than they are doing. Um, we are certainly going to see an agreement on climate, right, and on, on the environment and, and the return to the Paris Climate Accord. I, I, I think Biden has promised that openly, and I, I believe it's an easy promise to fulfill. Um, in terms of Russia, it also seems very clear that Biden takes Russia seriously as a threat And, um, and, and I think a lot of European governments take Russia quite serious as a threat, not just a threat in like the classical, you know, balance of power, <laughs> um, literature and international relations, but I mean, 
clearly a threat to the democratic process, to the internal politics of our own countries. I mean, that's that's something that um, I think the last four years and various elections, you know, from France to the United States have clearly shown that um, the power to destabilize the internal politics of a democracy uh, is 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 something to be reckoned with and um and that we need tools to to face what that means in the future we need tools to um to undo the damage of bots <laughs> the damage of misinformation campaigns of of spying right? i mean spying has always happened but the way that that that's being used and deployed strategically at critical junctures in democratic um, you know, critical junctures, I mean, during campaigns and during elections, I, I, I bet we will see a lot of cooperation between the Europeans and the Americans on trying to find solutions for for that sort of problem. And Daniela, um, you and I agree, let's hope that there's a peaceful transition of power in politics and also socially. And also that the United States uh, goes back to its proper place in the international community and also with a close relationship with us Europeans. So, um, Daniela, this has been great. Thank you so much for doing these two podcasts with me. It's been a fascinating conversation to have with you. And I'm going to ask you to come back to the podcast maybe in January or late January once, you know, all the dust settles and we have a Biden-Harris administration. It will be my pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Daniela. Thank you. I'm back just to remind you that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and Spotify. And if you like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by Elfa this month of November. On the 25th of November, based in Greece, we have the webinar EU Ascension and Economic Freedom. Does European Union market reforms and policies foster economic freedom? During this event, some key questions are to be discussed. For example, is the ascension to the European Union a reforming period linked more economic freedom? Which of the current EU policies foster economic freedom? Do identify EU economic policies with a detrimental effect to economic freedom? And finally, is regional divergence an obstacle to the overall integration policy and economic freedom? To say that this event is organized by the European Liberal Forum with the Center for Liberal Studies, CAFIM. And then on the following day, the 26th, based in Belgium, we have Young Changemakers Academy 2020, event number three. This event follows the online webinar, event two, and the Young Changemakers Academy, it's a program that aims to prepare young people to take active part in their respective communities by shaping their future in given policy areas. Also by means of three seminars, this network support with other young people and senior political figures from all over Europe with similar interests and objectives. To know more about these events, you just have to go to our webpage www.liberalforum.eu forward slash events. And this is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place.
The Liberal Europe podcast is organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any use that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. Yeah.